0: Today on Know the Truth, a lesson from Philip de DeCourcy. Just
1: as the wind catches the seal and drives the ship, so the Holy Spirit moved the writers of Scripture to write so that what we have in their words, the very words of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness.
0: What is the Bible? Where did it come from? Who wrote it? And how can we be sure it's God's Word? Welcome to Know the Truth. I'm Wayne Shepherd. And today, Philip DeCorsi answers all these questions and more with a lesson all about the Bible called The Good Book. It's part of our Without Apology series on living boldly and confidently for Christ. And if you missed the first part of this message, you can find it and listen on your own time at ktt.org or on the KTT app or podcast. Right now, let's join Pastor Philip for today's message. Guys,
1: you realize that the Bible is actually a compilation of 66 books. We call it the book, but it's really a library of books. It's a compilation of 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a time span of 1,500 years. Yet the amazing thing is there's one storyline, there's one unifying theme, there's one subject that holds it all together, and it's the story of God's love for us in Christ. If you miss that, you haven't understood your Bible. In fact, this is Jesus' theology, isn't it? This is Jesus' theory of the Bible. If you go to John 5 and verse 39, he's engaged in a conversation with the thinkers and theologians of his day. And I want you to notice what he says in John 5 verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life. And these, that is the scriptures, they testify of me. I'm the nexus of scripture. You know that encounter he had with the two discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus over in Luke chapter 24. And as he engages them, he hasn't yet disclosed himself, but he will. And as he does, he brings them to see that what has just happened in Jerusalem was indeed foretold in the Scriptures. Look at Luke 24 verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses, the Pentateuch, and all the prophets, he expanded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He'll go on in verse 44. He said to them, these are the words which were spoken to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. It couldn't be plainer, guys. From the mouth of the Lord Jesus, he's telling us that when Moses wrote, when David and Asaph wrote, When Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel wrote, when Micah wrote, and Zechariah wrote, they were writing about him, the one who was promised, the one who would come. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, verses three and four, we read that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And on the third day, he rose according to the scriptures. Guys, the Bible is about Christ. It's about your need of him. It's about man being made in God's image, man disobeying God's commands, man walking away from God, living under the judgment of God. The world is cursed. But the story is that God had a solution before the problem, that Jesus Christ would come as God's son and die for our sin on a knob of a hill outside the city of Jerusalem and dare pay for our sins so that we indeed can go back into a relationship with the God after whose image we were made and for whose purposes we were created. And you know what? The work of Jesus Christ hasn't finished because when it's all said and done, he's going to restore this old world back to a time and a condition prior to the fall of man. That's what the Bible's all about. There's a great story in the book, himself by A.B. Simpson, where he once saw a picture of the Constitution of the United States. It was skillfully engraved in a copper plate, so that when you looked at it closely, it was nothing more than a piece of writing. But when you stood back, it was the face of George Washington. The face shone out in the shading of the letters at a little distance. You could see a person, not the words not the ideas. And A.B. Simpson reflected on that experience, and this is what he said, this is the way to look at the Scriptures and understand the thoughts of God, to see them and in them the face of love shining through and through, not ideas, not doctrines, but Jesus himself as the life and source and sustaining presence of all of life. It's true. You know what? You look at the Scriptures, you read the words, the thoughts, the ideas, but you need to step back and understand that from Genesis to Revelation, fundamentally and foremost, there is a story concerning a person who came into the world to see of sinners. That's the nexus of the Scripture. Now, before I move on, if I was to apply that just for a couple of minutes, I wrote three ideas down. If Jesus Christ is the subject of the Bible, then number one, I should seek beyond my reading of the Bible an experiential knowledge of Christ. We love the Word of God because the Word of God points us to the one who can capture all our love. That's why the hymn writer said, beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. We are to read the Word of God with the intention of striking up a conversation with the living Christ who lives in us. We want our knowledge of him in the head to percolate down to an experience of him in the heart. And so be careful in reading the scriptures not to miss Christ. And so if Jesus is the nexus of scripture, I must seek an experiential knowledge of him. Number two, in studying the scripture, I must look for the redemptive trajectory of the text. What I mean by that is while Not every scripture, especially in the Old Testament, addresses the gospel or Jesus Christ directly, the book or the direction of that book will, by its trajectory, point towards the one who is coming, because that's what the Old Testament is about. And so when you're reading about King David, you might want to think about the greater David that's coming. When you think about Solomon, you want to think about the greater Solomon that's coming. When you read about the sacrifices and the lambs that were slaughtered in the temple and the tabernacle, you might want to think about the Lamb of God that indeed takes away the sin of the world. Wherever you are, especially in the Old Testament, remember that Moses wrote, and the Psalms are written, and the prophets spoke with Jesus in mind. So you read with Jesus in mind. Now you need to be careful not to find him where he isn't, But as I was under the teaching of Walter Kaiser at Trinity Theological School, he used this phrase, redemptive trajectory, that every book in the Old Testament is moving in some manner the story of Jesus forward or the story towards Jesus forward. That's why when you're reading a text, especially in the Old Testament, you want to both snorkel and ski. I stole this idea from Tony Merida in his book, faithful preaching. He says, you know, when we're in a text, we want to snorkel. Now, those of us who are committed to expository preaching, we want to go into the depths of the text. We want to take our time. We want to squeeze its meaning out and its context and its surrounding contact. So we snorkel. We don't come up for err for a while until we've engaged our mind and heart with the original intent of the author within the context of the time and place. But Tony Meredith says, you've not only got to snorkel, you've got to ski. You've got to go into the depths of the Word of God like a snorkeler in the ocean, but you've got to ski across the surface of the Scriptures like a skier and get to Jesus Christ because that's where the Word of God is going. And so I think that's helpful. Think that out, the balance of both snorkeling and skiing especially when the Old Testament understand the Old Testament as they would have originally understood it. Their understanding of Jesus would have been limited and the story of Jesus unfolding in the Old Testament progressive. But do remember that the story is moving in a direction towards a fulfillment in the new covenant and then the gospel. And finally, share the gospel message with others. I mean, as you read your Bible and you read it properly, you're going to come to understand God's love for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to take what you have read about Jesus Christ and share it with those who haven't read about Jesus Christ and take that story of Him and the glory of it and share it with those who are still without Him and a knowledge of God's love for their souls. That's the nexus of Scripture. Secondly, the nature of Scripture Now, when we speak about the nature of Scripture, what we're dealing with here is its essence, its character, its quality, its distinction. The Bible claims that the words that its various authors wrote were not original to them. Look at verse 16 of 2 Timothy. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The argument is, listen carefully, that the words that they wrote down were words that God breathed out. The words of the Bible are not simply the words of dead men written on the skins of dead animals. No, according to this text and other texts, these words written on the skins of these dead animals are words infused with the energy of God, living and eternal words, words that God spoke, words that were written down under the supervision and superintendence of the Holy Spirit. That's what's being taught here in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. You need to understand this, guys. The claim of the Bible is what we have in the Bible is God's own word. A revelation of God's mind, heart, and will plainly, objectively communicated in human language within history. A unique, perfect, sufficient record and revelation of God's mind and heart found nowhere else and certainly not in any other book. That's what's being claimed here. That's what's being taught here. This is what Timothy is being asked to commit himself to. Timothy, you understand the nexus of Scripture because from a child, you've come to understand that the Bible, the Scriptures, are there to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And Timothy, you need to commit yourself to this, that what you have in the Scriptures is God-breathed. This term, given by inspiration, can be translated breathed out by God. Now, for the time we have left, you need to keep your thinking cap on because you need to grasp this. You may be able to articulate this. You need to be able to defend this. Listen to what I'm about to say. If the Scriptures are breathed out by God, you and I need to remember and distinguish between this. God did not breathe into human authors, inspiring them, God breathed out His inspired Word to them. And by means of the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, they wrote that Word without error out of their own vocabulary. Supernaturally and simultaneously, their words were God's words. That, in a nutshell, is the doctrine of inspiration. The words of the biblical writers, the words that they spoke and recorded, Were not, according to Paul, words which came from man's wisdom, but were words taught by the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 13. In fact, if you read the Word of God, you'll realize that the writers of Scripture were very much aware that the words that they were writing had been spoken by God. Let me give you a couple of examples. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, we read concerning David. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds like the tender grass springing out of the earth. David was conscious that what he spoke had been spoken to him by God himself. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 36, and verse 2, Jeremiah articulates a similar thought. In fact, if you back up into verse 1, now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations. If you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 16, the New Testament writers acknowledge that indeed those who wrote the Old Testament were guided by the Spirit of God. Listen to what Peter says, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. In fact, Peter, in his own epistle in 1 Peter 1, verse 11, makes this abundantly clear, Again, especially speaking of the Old Testament, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. See, the nexus of Scripture is the grace that's coming in the appearing of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, chapter 1, first Peter, searching what or what manner of time this Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified before the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was the Spirit of God testifying about the Son of God within the prophets of God that brought about the writing of Scripture. The exact manner in which this was done eludes our understanding. It's supernatural. It's a miracle. Like every miracle, it's hard to explain. But the means by which it was done is explained by Peter. If you go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, we read, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That is, Scripture wasn't spoken or written unaided. This isn't written by man. This is written by the Holy Spirit. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God, as they spoke, moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, we can understand it, but the means by which the Word of God was written was that the Holy Spirit supervised and superintended the process. In fact, it's interesting, this phrase, moved by the Holy Spirit, is a word that is used in Acts 27, verse 15, of a ship, that was carried by the wind. In Acts 27, verse 15, reading of Paul's shipwreck, the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we give way to it and were driven along. That's the image. Just as the wind catches the seal and drives the ship, so the Holy Spirit mastered and controlled and moved the writers of Scripture to write, yes, out of their own vocabulary, within their own day, reflecting their own personality. But he didn't breathe into them the Word of God. God breathed out His Word, and they wrote under the control and supervision and superintendence of the Holy Spirit so that what we have in their words, the very words of God, inspired, inerrant, authoritative. Let's dig a little deeper. I want you to notice that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. Two words stand out there. We'll take them one at a time, Scripture and all. You need to understand that it is Scripture that is inspired, The Greek word graphi gives us our words writing. So the writings are inspired. The writings are breathed out. It's important to understand that the writers were not inspired. God didn't breathe into the writers his inspired word. God breathed out his inspired word. And under the Supervision and superintendence of the Holy Spirit, they wrote out of their vocabulary that which God wanted to say. But it's important that you note know that their writings are inspired, not the writers. All the writings, the secret writings as a whole, are God-breathed, inspired by God. The word inspired means breathed out, not breathed into. It's the writing that was inspired, not the writer's.
0: You're listening to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy and an enlightening message titled The Good Book. If you joined us late today, be sure to catch up on this lesson by downloading the KTT app or podcast. Just search your favorite app store or podcast platform for Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy or listen online at ktt.org. And by the way, Pastor Philip will be back in a moment, so stick around. At Know the Truth, it's our mission to share the gospel with the world in need of truth, And one of the ways we do this is by providing resources that helps believers grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and in their daily walk of faith. This month, we're excited to make another practical tool available to you, hand-selected by Pastor Philip. And Philip, why don't you take a moment and tell us about this month's resource? We and I'd love
1: to. We put a great deal of effort into selecting resources for our Truth Ambassadors, resources that will be useful tools for our listeners And this month, we have selected a book called Living by God's Promises by Joel Beakey and James LaBelle. This book draws from the stellar Puritan writings on the divine promises of God. It's a book written in contemporary language for today's readers. I've read it. I loved it. It reminded me of the great and exceeding promises of God that Peter talks about, It reminded me of something that Adoniram Judson said as a missionary to Burma, that the future is as bright as the promises of God. We have wonderful promises in the gospel that bring confidence, assurance, and energy to our daily lives. And I can't wait for our truth ambassadors to get their hands on this book. Talking about truth ambassadors, let me share a prayer. And we're praying as a team that God would indeed expand the team of Truth Ambassadors who commit to regularly and monthly giving toward this ministry, which is so important. Would you consider joining the team? In addition to the book, Living by God's Promises, we'll send you a welcome package, some of my own books. You'll be put onto the list of recipients for our quarterly Accord newsletter. And on top of all of that, we'll send you... A custom shirt with Know the Truth, a reminder that you are a faithful member of our team and we're in this together. Without you, there is no us.
0: Wayne, will you tell them how to get in touch? To become a Truth Ambassador today, you can reach out to Know the Truth at 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. And as a thank you for your monthly partnership or gift of any amount, you'll receive Living by God's Promises. This encouraging book provides rich content that will equip Christians to live with confidence, assurance, and energy daily. Just call us at 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. And should you decide to become a Truth Ambassador in January, you'll receive the brand new Know the Truth shirt as a wearable reminder of our special partnership. You'll also receive a welcome package from Pastor Philip with newly written books, quarterly newsletters, and other exclusive benefits designed just for Truth Ambassadors. Once again, call us at 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. As always, if you'd prefer to write, address your envelope to know the truth, Post Office Box 30250 anaheim hills california 92809 one more thing if you're new to know the truth we have a welcome gift for you it's a devotional booklet called resting in god's daily sufficiency learn more and request your copy at ktt.org well this is wayne shepherd signing off but join us again next time for more bold biblical teaching from philip to right here on know the truth